Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives inclusive growth and opportunity for our local tech, innovation, and startup ecosystem. They recently announced the 2022 Chicago Venture Summit, Future of Food, their new flagship conference to highlight why Chicago leads as a global capital for food innovation. Follow World Business Chicago on LinkedIn and Twitter for event details and other related news about our city's economic progress. Professor Weiss, thank you so much for making the time to hop back on Chicago Capital. I think you are one of our first ever return guests, and uh, and, and it's a very well-earned honor, so thank you very much. <laughs> I am, I am flattered. I was flattered to have you choose me the first time. And the fact that I'm, I may be one of the first people to be back again means that I didn't completely screw up the first time. So, well, for me, it's really, I graduated from Booth. So now, you know, you can't affect my grade in any class going forward, depending on this podcast interview. So I can really just let it rip here. I'm, I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you. I can, I can uh, just turn it off anytime I need to. So. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, no, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, obviously with everything that's going on in the macro kind of market right now, as well as at the early stage, I thought it would be prudent and I thought it'd be great to get, um, somebody from Hyde Park, uh, on the show to kind of discuss the environment we're in right now. Um, Hyde Park and Guy Turner, especially, you know, put out a blog post a few weeks ago on his blog VC with me, that was sort of the catalyst for this, for this conversation. Um, but I think today will just be kind of an open ring conversation about where we're at right now and, uh, and your sort of prognosis going forward. So I guess to kick things off, um, you know, would love to sort of hear your thoughts on, on how exactly we, we got to the place we're in right now, uh, you know, from a macro perspective and from an early stage perspective, what do you think were some of the major events that took place in the past, you know, probably 10 plus years, I would say this really feels like it's been building since the great financial crisis. So, um, you know, what we could start there, I guess. It's a big, it's a big open-ended question, but we can work (laughs) on it. Um, I'm, uh, I'm always happy to be back up to, uh, my, my great partner, Guy Turner. So, so I'm happy to talk about his blog, talk about my, my general thoughts. Um, so you'll look, 10 years ago, I've been, I've been doing startup investing for um, almost 20 years now. And, you know, as of 10 years ago, it was really expensive to build a technology company and starting about 10 years ago, it became much less expensive. And there've been, I mean, hundreds of incredible success stories since then. And the venture markets have grown very, very significantly. And so, you know, what did you're kind of asking a little bit about the past? How did we get here? we got here because there were dozens and dozens of great tech successes um, and therefore lots of additional funding that came into the market. And that has been great for founders. It's been great for people who invested in venture funds and returns for funds have been really, really strong. And so what did that do? Well, that meant that the venture market itself has expanded a lot over the last five years and you've ended up with crossover funds and for a while we had the vision fund we still have the vision fund but we had a you know one 
SoftBank raised a $100 billion fund. And so lots and lots of money pouring into the market. Um, you know, that I would say, because of all the successes, kind of bid up the most interesting companies. And last year we had, maybe the last couple of years, we've had, we've had almost a frenzy of activity for really exciting companies. And now things have, you know, been coming back down pretty quickly, particularly at the growth stages and the late stages. And I think for most people that have been involved in the venture markets for a long time, um, people feel like, well, this is probably a good thing because the frenzy, you know, is probably not good for, you know, investors, even probably not good for founders because even on the founder side, it just creates some additional risk. So I'll, I'll stop there. I could speak for, you know, I could probably speak for 30 minutes just about how we got here, but that's a little bit of a, that's a bit of a, a little bit of a high level map. No, you, you, you made a great point about the frenzy not being great on the founder perspective. And, and I think intuitively it makes sense for, you know, many people probably listening to the show, high prices, high valuations. That's not great from a, from a venture capital investor. It's not great for investors usually in general. Um, but from a founder perspective, could, could we kind of just unpack that just a little bit of why the era of higher valuations was actually probably in some cases, maybe detrimental to, to a founder? Well, so I didn't fully misspeak, but I wasn't trying to suggest that the high valuations were bad for founders. It's a little bit more the frenzy being bad for founders because high valuations are great for founders. They're also great for the startup ecosystem because they pull more and more people to become founders. Um, the frenzy of the funding market is, I think, problematic just because um, people in the venture markets and particularly Fred Wilson talks about the fact that it creates bad marriages. And what I mean by bad marriages, you know, funders have to make very quick decision. Founders feeling like, feeling like they make quick decisions about the VCs to get involved and the journey of a VC backing a company can be a, a five-year journey, a seven-year journey, a nine-year journey, a 12-year journey. And really what's best for the market is for everybody to be able to make pretty thoughtful, um, you know, slow paced decisions about who the right funder is. So, you know, don't get me wrong, the high valuations are good for founders. Maybe they're, you know, worse for VCs. And I'm happy to talk about how that creates pressure on founders and what, what kind of pressure. But for me, it's a little bit more about um, the, the VC founder connection and for founders and startups finding the right VC, you know, not the, not the right VC, but founding the handful of right partners for the next stage of growth for their business. Yeah, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. There's, there's probably more of a deliberate relationship building that needs to occur at the earliest of stages because of, as you mentioned, the partnership lasting lasting so long. Um, and you still, I would imagine in normal times, normal times, I guess, pre-2020, this is a question actually, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it, what was sort of the time from diligence to check writing that was sort of standard for Hyde Park or most VCs kind of before the pandemic? Was it, was it you know, a month? Was it you know, more than a month, because it felt like as of late in the past six to 12 months, it really felt like that diligence time just got so compressed as part of this frenzy. So just curious about that sort of timeline that usually was the standard. Yeah, I mean, we, um, 
there are many cases where we make extremely quick decisions about investing in companies and that literally in some cases could be within a few days or within a week. Um, you know, I think those are the minority, um, but I'll, I'll talk not about our own statistics, but about first round capital. They publish a blog every year about the year and about what's going on. And I think in last year's blog, they mentioned that, that from the time they met with a company, from the time that they committed to investing had gotten to be an average of nine days, which is just unbelievably small. Now they invest really early, but it's still such a short period of time that it's hard for the founders to get to know the VCs. It's hard for the VCs to get to know the founders. Um, generally, we always want time. We, meaning the investors, always want enough time to get to know founders. And that may be, you know, a month, it may be two months, it may be tracking a company for five months to a year. Um, sometimes it's as short as three days to, you know, let's say a couple of weeks. But um, I don't have an average for our firm just because we don't really track that. Um, and it's so situation specific, like when there's an interesting opportunity that we're really excited about an interesting founding team, we can move very, very quickly the same way that any firm can move very quickly. And then, you know, when you're talking to founders um, today, I think there's a, a question that comes up a lot of, okay, the, the, the public markets are definitely taking a downturn in a bear market. Why does this affect me as a series A stage company or a seed? You know, I raise my seed round. I'm going out to raise my series A. Why should I care? I'm so much earlier in the sort of in the in the life cycle. Um, what would your usual response be to somebody who's sort of, you know, asking that question? Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. My answer is the fundraising markets have changed quite a bit and you need to give yourself as much flexibility as possible. So when the cost of capital was really low, it was really, really, really easy to raise capital for always. It's always easy to raise capital for extremely good companies. It recently, it's been pretty easy to raise capital for any company that was pretty good. Um, and for companies that were, you know, maybe good, but not spectacular, even those, you know, those companies could raise money. The, the environment has changed pretty dramatically very quickly. And so, you know, you may be a company that right now feels like, well, we're doing so well that we could raise money very, very quickly. And maybe when you go to need to raise money, you may be in the category of companies, well, well, you'll be able to raise money, but it will just take a lot longer. So I think my guidance to founders is be more deliberate. Um, you know, don't spend money like a drunken sailor. Um, be thoughtful about it. You know, if anything, you know, the, the market for talent was really, really tight and the market for talent is loosening up pretty quickly. And so the more you can wait to hire people now, um, either you know, now it's easier in the fall, it may be even easier. Maybe you want to wait a little bit, if you, even if you had a pretty thoughtful plans about when to when to hire folks. So. Yeah, and I and I guess in that sort of sense of um, prepare, being prepared and and sort of making the right strategic moves today, if possible. Have you, what's sort of your thoughts on, um, you know, founders going out and raising bridge capital or more sort of, I guess, off cycle investments that, you know, might be a good idea right now just to extend runway as much as possible. Is that something that you would advise? Do you think it's 
absolutely critical right now? Like, is that where we're at? Or do you think it's still maybe, maybe more of a wait and see approach as of right now and see how things sort of fall? Um, you know, that is so company specific, Matt. It's, there's not like a, there's just no general answer to it. Um, generally in the VC world, it's better to never have, it's better from a, even a founder's perspective to never have a bridge because, you know, frankly, it's always looked at a little bit negatively by funders because funders are like, huh, why did you need a bridge? Um, in the current environment, we do have a, we do see a lot more companies that are saying, you know what, I'm going to do a new round, but it's really just an extension of the prior round at the same valuation. And so even in the prior environment, we would suggest for our companies that we're doing a bridge financing round, let's just call it an extension because it always, it always seems and sounds a little better. Um, my view in the current environment is it's still better to avoid a bridge if you need to fundraise and you have supportive investors because the company's doing well, do a round, whatever that looks like, whether you call it a bridge or, a, or an extension. If you need capital, it's a real, you know, raise money. It is an environment where if you really don't need capital, it's, it's, it is an environment right now that I would say generally it's better, it's better to wait unless there's some compelling reason that you, that you need to raise. And then from a, I guess on the other side of the, the fundraising question, more from the, you know, the institutional LP standpoint, um, you know, generally speaking in a downturn, um, what are your kind of thoughts on, you know, sort of how the LP appetite may look at the sort of the, the venture capital asset class? Um, do downturns typically mean people sort of flock to venture because it is a little bit more uh, long-term of investment? It's not facing the same sort of volatility, I guess you could say, day-to-day -day that public markets face. Um, how do you think LPs sort of, I guess, putting on your LP hat a little bit, how do you think they sort of see a downturn in the the you know the opportunity of venture capital as an asset class well let, let me talk about the current downturn because i think it's most easy you know every, every downturn in some ways is a little different for lps i think many institutional lps have been very happy if they're in venture funds the average venture fund has had pretty good returns over the last you know even decade and so most LPs are pretty happy with the asset class. The limited partners that haven't been allocated enough to the asset class have been trying to get allocated to the asset class. And I think that the current downturn is not going to dissuade, you know, institutional LPs from, from being excited about the asset class. All that said, anytime there's a downturn, it becomes a little harder for institutional LPs to allocate money to venture funds because of something that we call the denominator, they call the denominator problem. Generally, how do they allocate money to alternatives, private equity, venture capital? They, they allocate a portion of their overall dollars to the venture asset class. And when they do that, let's say that's, I'm just gonna make up a percentage, let's say that's 10% out of 100%. When the public markets go down by a lot, it naturally squeezes the amount of money that they can commit to funds. And the problem is they've already made a bunch of commitments to funds. So what happens is they tend to be, have to scale back a little bit. Many of them have to scale back a bit. 
we're in that current environment where maybe LPs are committed to the asset class, but they have to scale back a bit. And whenever they think about scaling back a bit, what does that mean? Well, if they have funds that they have long-term relationships with that they're really committed to, they're gonna support those funds. And for any other fund, and that in you know, many cases includes funds like Hyde Park Venture Partners, it just becomes harder for those funds to, to raise, so. And there's a question here, I think, too, about just the nature of LP and VC fund relationships. And I think it's probably helpful for some people um, to kind of get a get an inside view of this. Uh, when, you know, I'm a VC fund and I go out to raise from an LP uh, and you sort of announce any VC fund, you announce that you've raised, let's say, 100 million in a, in a new fund, in fund four. Um, that capital, could you kind of describe what that actually means? It's not like a hundred million just gets delivered right to your doorstep and you can now go invest in that over the next five years. I think that's actually an interesting point about VC funds uh, and sort of how that relationship works with the money they've actually raised. Yeah. So how does a VC fund work? And it's also true on the private equity side, unlike a hedge fund or unlike even what individual investors buy stocks, we buy bonds, we buy various things. You know, you send the cash off, you get some stock. The venture funds and private equity funds, you know, let's take the number that you're describing, a $100 million fund. What happens is investors make a commitment to the fund, but the venture fund doesn't want to take all that $100 million right away because the venture fund of the private equity fund is going to spend the next few years looking around for opportunities. And if we called all the capital right away and put $100 million in the bank, it would just sit in the bank and it wouldn't be any use for it. And so the way a fund works, and you know, you know, you know this, Matt, and probably a lot of people on the call note as well, um, funds get collect commitments and then they draw down those commitments over time and they may draw down 20% of the commitment in the first year. So maybe they draw $20 million. Then the next year, maybe they drew draw down 25% of the commitment. As the funds find interesting opportunities, we call up our investors and we're like, hey, we made some great investments. Send us money, send us more money to find some other good investments. That's the way the funds tend to work over time. And also on the venture fund side, it's even slower than the private equity fund side, because on the venture fund side, you call some capital, but you even reserve some capital for follow-on financing rounds for your companies. And so you may draw down even at a slower pace than what private equity funds might. And does it ever happen in venture where because of the market conditions, would a VC ever basically tell LPs, we actually don't want to call that capital for whatever reason, it, you know, we're in a bad environment right now. Uh, we don't want to call as much of that capital this year, or we actually sort of want to release you from that commitment uh, by a certain percentage. Does that ever happen in downturns? Um, well, in very, very significant downturns, you'll see that occasionally. So like the financial, you know, the tech bubble burst in the year 2000, you had, you had, I would say quite a few funds in the years after that do what you said, Matt, which is, look, we're not really sure there's great opportunities out there. You know, maybe we're going to scale back how much we're going to invest. Um, you know, you had a little bit of that in the financial crisis, but mostly funds um, say, maybe they just say, look, our deployment schedule is going to be a little bit lower. 
But funds don't want to let their LPs off the hook unless they're really darn sure there aren't going to be good opportunities. Now, what tends to happen is the following. It's actually, it's not fully the reverse, but let's take the current downturn. The current downturn really means maybe there's going to be some extremely good opportunities over the next 12 to 18 months. So funds don't want to go to their investors and say, hey, we're not going to draw down this money. We may say, hey, we might be a little slower, but really there could be some great opportunities. And so be ready. We're going to find some great opportunities. We're going to call you and we're going to you know, want your money to fund those opportunities. But usually you don't really want to let them off the hook unless the environment has changed so dramatically that you're you're you think that there aren't going to be good opportunities out there. That's not the current environment that we're in. The current environment is, oh, maybe there's going to be lots of great companies out there. Maybe there'll be some even better opportunities to make some good investments. And I think, too, this is a question, I guess, you know, more on the investing side and the negotiation side and and I guess speaks to the environment we're in. Do you think we'll see the return of some of those more onerous investing terms that existed in the past? You know, the full ratchets, for example, um, if this is truly, I guess it will depend on the type of downturn we're in, or maybe it won't. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on if we'll see some of those terms that used to exist 20 years ago and now haven't for quite a long time. Yeah, so those um, those kinds of terms, maybe they were more frequent in the past, but they're still around for any late stage company, mid to late stage company that hasn't really performed well. Even in the current environment, you will see later round investors effectively say, look, um, in order for me to want to invest, given how well the company's done, you need to get the returns. Need, I need a little I need to juice my returns in some way. I think the current environment, we're going to see, you know, we've already started to see some of that, not for groups like ours at the early stage, because it's very, very uncommon at the early stages, but at the growth stages, at the late stages, particularly if you've had a prior round where the valuation was extremely high, the company does need to do a new financing round. The new investor may put something that we call structure on this, on the next financing round, and that structure is really because the other thing the the investors and founders could say is, look, why don't we do a down round? And why don't we say, you know, maybe the last round value the company at $200 million. We're going to value the next round at a hundred million. That's one way to deal with the fact that the valuation environment has changed. The other way is to put structure around the, you know, financing agreement. And that's what you're, that's what you're describing, Matt. We have started to see more of that at the mid and late stage. And I think over the next six months, you'll see quite a bit of that. That won't be true for the really, really best companies, but for company, particularly companies that have raised money at valuations that are now hard to justify and need to raid capital, they will, there, will, there will be structure on some of those. And I think this this leads to the, the part of the blog post um, that, that I found very interesting was sort of the, the main points that you all are kind of coaching your founders on, your portfolio companies on today. Uh, we've, we've hit on a, a few of these a little bit in the conversation already, but uh, just would, would love to kind of expand a little bit upon, you know, sort of the three main points it seems that, that Hyde Park is really trying to coach their founders on. The first one being um, cash is king. 
very, very much a statement that I'm sure anyone uh, who's been in a, in a finance class has heard. Uh, but I would love to hear in the context of where we're at today and, and how you're you know, discussing this with your founders, uh, if you could unpack that a little bit. Yeah, this is a conversation we're having with all of our founders across the portfolio. Um, we've just come out of an environment where it was relatively easy to raise. Um, if you have money in the bank, you just want to use that carefully and you want to try to make sure that you have a pretty significant runway. And maybe that's a runway of 24 months, depending on your company. Maybe that's a runway that's longer and maybe it's a runway of 18 months. But you don't want to have to be raising, you don't want to have to go to the fundraising markets over the next nine to 12 months if you can avoid it. It doesn't mean you may not choose to, but you want to you want to conserve your cash um, and make the trade-off of, well, you know, what it, you know, why did I raise money? I raised, I raised money, I wrote, raised money to grow quicker. And right now in the current environment, growth used to be valued very, very highly and people care less about cash flows. And now people seem to care a lot about cash flows and a little less about growth. So, you know, we'd like our founders to think about those trade-offs you know, does that mean doing a round of cuts? That depends on the specific company, but we see a lot of really, really good companies doing rounds of layoffs right now. Not recommending that for every company, but I think it's a trade-off that the you know, founders and, and the leadership team need to make. A little bit of a side tangent here, but do you think in an environment like this, sometimes these really good companies you're talking about, do you think layoffs ever occur sometimes because they see their peers sort of going through that exercise of cutting burn, of doing layoffs. And it almost becomes a, you know, a, a sort of game theory, like, I guess this is something we need to do. If other companies kind of in our cohort are at our, at our growth stage are doing this, then we also need to participate in layoffs. Or do you think that's, it really usually comes down to burn and that's not really something that happens in the real world. That's just something I've always thought of. Yeah, I think there's a part of it, Matt, that is you're dead on, which is founders, CEOs are like, well, lots of people are cutting back. We probably need to do the same. But I'll give you um, the venture side as well, which is VCs are putting pressure on their portfolio companies to do layoffs. So when this is going on in the boardroom across a lot of our companies, you know, myself, other VCs that are in the boardroom, we're all seeing a lot of our even good companies doing layoffs. We just came out of an environment where it was very costly to hire good talent. Um, maybe you had to, you know, hire talent that wasn't as good as you might have wanted. And so there's pressure on the funder side to our portfolio companies to think very wisely about it. Founders and leaders are thinking about it. it's also something that as a CEO or a founding team, it's a little easier to do layoffs or cuts right now because you can point to the rest of your company and you can say, hey, everybody's doing this right now. Um, we need to do it to be prudent. And the rest of the company doesn't feel like, oh, what's wrong with our company that we're cutting back a bit? So it's a pretty opportune time to do it. Doesn't mean it's the right decision for every company. But yes, we see groups of companies feeling like they have a little bit of pressure, either pressure from the board or an opportunity to do it. And I think the next point you all kind of talk on is managing founders, managing their expectations. And I think that relates to valuations and fundraising, but would love to hear you kind of um, unpack that and talk about, you know, the types of expectations you're hoping they manage. 
Yeah, I think um, there are the founders that we haven't yet invested in. And this is the founders that we've invested in who are going to be looking at the next financing round. And just generally, the fundraising environment has shifted pretty significantly at the growth stage, at the late stage. We've already talked about it quite a bit on this podcast. Um, the early stages, the fundraising environment is still pretty good. Um, and at the same time, generally, you just want to have keep your expectations in check to try to always optimize over. I find the best part. I find, you know, some maybe the, a partner that I really want to work with for the next stage of growth. And maybe I've got a range of valuation that I'm excited about. But valuation at the in the private markets, I always feel like, especially the early and the early growth stage, should take a little bit of backseat to finding um, the, the right firm, the right partner to work with. Now, of course, this is a little bit of self, this is a little bit self serving because that's when we tend we tend to invest at this stage. But I do think you're in this in the long haul with a founder. And you really want um, you really want to find the right partner who's going to be supportive, who really believes in your model, who can really help when you need help. And I would just you know check the expectations at the door, because high expectations just tend to turn off you know many funders. And really, you know the, the fundraising environments are still liquid enough that if you're a good company, you you should feel pretty happy about the valuation that you get. Yeah, it's a it's it's almost like um, optimizing for different things now that we're in this sort of new normal than maybe what has historically been the case in the last few years. I think I think that makes a ton of sense. And then I think one of the last bits is um, beware of the middling third. Uh, would love if you could expand on you know what really is the middle third middling third in the in the context of in the context of early stage investing. Um, I mean, this is a concept that you know my partner Guy Turner talks a little bit more about. I think. The way that I think about it is a little bit more company specific. There are some companies that are doing so well they can raise money very easily. There's some companies doing pretty darn well. Then there's the rest of companies. And maybe you're in the category of, you know, things are not working as well as we'd hoped. This environment, it's going to be really hard to raise money. You know, then there's that middle group. And I think. You know, you just need to think as a founder about how easy do you think it's going to be for me to raise new capital? How much money do I have in the bank and conserving that all carefully enough? And, you know, what happens in markets like this is VCs look do look across their portfolio. You know, most VCs, including our firm, we're willing to bridge any of our babies because we're very, very supportive. But at the same time, some are more deserving of capital than others, given what's going on. And so just want to conserve, just want to conserve your capital wisely. And I guess one of the last topic areas I wanted to cover is just, um, you know, your prognosis, you know, you and maybe the, the entire of Hyde Park's prognosis for the next, you know, six to 12 to 18 months is as best as you can sort of reason, you know, what do you think the type of, what do you think this type of downturn will be, you know, a deep and extended prolonged recession, more of a V-shaped recession, um, you know, maybe a rally coming sooner than people expected. Uh, I know none of us are, 
none of us are macro economists over here, but uh, it's always fun to speculate. So uh, we try and leave a little room for speculation in the show. <laughs> um, it's a really hard question to answer, Matt, because it's just it's just hard to know. Um, I will give you my thoughts on it, um, which is it does feel like it's going to be a particularly tough environment um, and that we're likely headed for a recession. Inflation's, you know, inflation's been running really high. The Fed is not used to dealing with really high inflation. They're definitely on a path to increase rates, increase rates, increase rates, no matter what, in some ways, no matter what's going on from an economic activity level. And the last time we saw this from the Fed, really, I would say, induced the financial crisis that we saw into in 2007, 2008, 2009. I don't expect it to be nearly that bad, but we are in an environment where there's just a lot of warning signs. Um, the good news on the venture and startup side is that there are a lot of VC funds out there and there's a lot of VC funds that have raised a lot of money. And so, you know, relative to the public markets, people are still gonna be able to access capital in the private markets. But my sense is, it's going to be a difficult environment for at least the next nine to 12 months. And a lot of it depends on what happens in the public markets and whether the public markets really fully open up again to, you know, the, the, a bunch of late stage interesting companies and how easy it is for them to raise capital in the public markets. Because right now you have hedge funds, these crossover funds, it kind of falls through from the public markets we saw some of this in the tech bubble bursting. The last time we've had something like this is the tech bubble bursting where the public markets refueling a lot in the private markets. This is not the same as that environment just because we have so much more money in the private markets and so many more good companies. But it is, it does feel like it's going to be you know, difficult for quite a while. Um, it doesn't feel like when COVID hit, when you were like, well, wow, this is completely different. You know, is this only going to last a couple months and then things are going to be great? Who knew? Um, I think it felt then like it was going to be really bad, but we didn't, we just didn't know. This feels like it's going to be bad for quite a bit and that you're definitely headed for recession. Hard to tell. I, I, I can't make a prediction about what that recession looks like other than the environment for the next nine to 12 months feels, feels challenged. So. Right, Professor, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. I could talk about this for hours, but uh, really appreciate you coming on and, and giving your perspective. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's definitely something that will be coming up more and more in the show. Uh, I have a strong feeling as the months go on. So it, it's very happy we could kind of kick the conversation off with you. Um, but thank you very much for your it's time. It's great. Well, I should have started, I realized that looking back at it, I should have started by saying how proud I am of you, Matt. Because between the last time we spoke and now, you have gotten a full-time job as a VC. Great so, timing by me. I'm so, it's great timing on the investing side. Um, and, and it is wonderful to see. It's very, very well-deserved. And I'm just proud of you as a, and you make, you know, Chicago boot proud, finding a great VC job, getting into the game and not just asking questions about VC, but being able to live it and experience it yourself. So great to see him, excited to see a bunch of investments coming your way. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, we're hoping you're going to be the next Harry, Harry Stebbins out there. So. 
All right. Well, this now automatically you're invited back for a third time. I mean, you, you, you throw some compliments my way. That's as easy as it is. I'll see you in six months, sir. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see if I'm willing to come back that quickly. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Perfect. No, thank you so much, professor. Uh, I definitely can say, I, I don't know if I'd be in this seat if it weren't for you and the classes I took from you and the experience of learning from you at Booth. So I'm, I'm so happy you were my first postgraduate uh, guest on the show. Um, and I'm just honored to have you. And thank you so much. And thanks for all you do in the Chicago ecosystem. And uh, we look forward to having you on again in the very near future, hopefully. That's great. Wonderful, Matt. It's really, really, really good to connect. Take care.